This is the Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. seems to be someone, well, he definitely was, a religious huckster. There are modern parallels. There are analogues to this in the modern world. I think there always have been throughout history. People who start up cults, and uh, sometimes it seems quite clear that it's for pecuniary gain. You can make your own mind up about who's par- what parallels you can make up yourself. But this is a lesser-known one because uh, it's kind of disappeared in the white noise of history. We're talking the late 1800s, in fact, and it happened in Christchurch. Uh, This is a peculiar individual, Mr. Arthur Bentley Worthington. A lot of people listening that knew Christchurch in the 60s would have been familiar with his temple as well before it was demolished in 1966. So, our outsider this week, Jared Arthur Worthington. Yeah, possibly the biggest confidence trickster ever to set foot on our shores. Actually, he had an international reputation that sort of wasn't picked up. He only spent about nine years in New Zealand, but it was enough to cause a huge sensation. And interestingly, in um, Rex Monogatti's book, Sensations, it's his first chapter. And what a lead-in story it is, too. Arthur Bentley Worthington, his real name was Samuel Oakley Crawford, actually and he came to Christchurch in 1890 but not before he had been identified as one of the most notorious rascals in the United States he was described as. He'd left scores of victims in virtually every town he visited. He'd had nine marriages using a different name every time and with a common theme of ripping off his wife of their fortune or whatever. He managed to come out here in 1890 and set up what he called the Temple of Truth and all his believers became the students of truth. For nine years he made a huge impact in Christchurch and also extended to Auckland as well and of course you made mention of that Temple of Truth which was on the uh, one of the corners in Latimer Square there. It had six ionic columns and had seating, Graham, for a thousand people. Isn't that amazing? And um, it's uh, 600 more in the galleries so it was a very impressive building and right next to it of course a 12 room mansion for himself and his family all done out of solicitations from his followers but in the end people in New Zealand were shocked that a man with such a shocking criminal record could establish himself in Christchurch and be a teacher of a so called religion and he published something like nearly 3 million pages of so-called doctrine when he was here. 
and afterwards he was described by an Australian judge as one of the most dangerous imposters that had ever come to this country. But amazingly, he was completely above the law here. He uh, certainly really wasn't convicted of anything. Not a lot's known about his early life, but it's worth going into this man's life in America because it really lays the groundwork for the sort of person that he was. He certainly used up all his credibility in America. His real name was Oakley Crawford. He was also known as Samuel Oakley Crawford. And he was born to a Samuel Crawford, who was a lawyer, and his wife, Susan Reynolds. He was born on the 1st of March, 1847, in Saugatai, New York. He served in the American Civil War, actually, in 1864 to 65, and it's said to have been ordained as a Methodist minister soon after that. Now, as I said, not a lot of details are known about him because the confidence tricksters, Graham, they're very good at covering their tracks and using different names. We know that in 1868, he, he married a Josephine Erickson Moore in New York, and this was the first of nine marriages, the rest of which were all bigamous. In October 1870, he was jailed on a charge of obtaining money by false pretenses. That was his first conviction and was released in 1873. And then he began using a bewildering variety of aliases and he began a practice of marrying or forming a, a liaison with wealthy women and then abandoning them and any children. He was known to have fathered uh, at least three kids, but always after swindling his um, wife of her wealth. And uh, he practised uh, many occupations, including law, but they were all fronts for his criminal activities. Now, there's a picture of him on the website, Graham. He's almost baby-faced. He's an incredibly convincing-looking character, actually. But in 1889, he fled a bigamous marriage in um, Grand Forks, Dakota, and, and he went to New York City, where he assumed the name by which he is best known. So that's Arthur Bentley Worthington. And he joined a, a Christian scientist sect as a faith healer and he soon won the heart of the sex international journal editor who was Mary Plunkett. She was described as a handsome and magnetic priestess of the movement. She was the wife of John Plunkett. Now, Worthington and her declared themselves almost soulmates and went through a widely publicised mock marriage. It was almost a scandal and John Plunkett, he, at first he accepted the situation and they parted amicably, but under the influence of followers scandalised by her behaviour, he began to investigate Worthington's background, and this was the undoing of Worthington in America, and Worthington, he was quickly identified, quote, one of the most notorious rascals in the United States who had left scores of victims in every town he visited. Okay, this strikes me as a clear parallel to Joseph Smith and the Church of the Latter-day Saints at the, almost the same time. It does, doesn't it? It's interesting, isn't it? It's a sort of a colonial thing, if you want. Societies that are sort of trying to emerge from colonial rawness or something to middle-class respectability, and these religions are purported to do this, and they attract these con artists, Graham, at that time, you know? It seems as though he does become a dedicated professional to confidence tricksterism. 
Yeah, he does. And he did actually confess, apparently. Before he left America, he did confess that his career had been full of deceptions and his life had been a living falsehood. He claimed that Mary Plunkett had converted him to righteousness and he fled America with Mary Plunkett. She now called herself Mrs Worthington and later in the cult that he set up in New Zealand, she was Sister Magdala. They had two children. Well, it was actually her children and they arrived in Christchurch together in January 1890 so this is where their story starts in New Zealand. Right now he's saying I've changed my ways I've converted to a life of righteousness thanks to my wife Blunkett who's not his wife really and these are my two children who are not his two children so so much for any conversion to righteousness he's added again he's escaped the heat of the United States where he's become too well known as a confidence trickster and thought he might try it somewhere else and he chose New Zealand. Yeah, as far away as he could probably get, I'd say. I suppose, you know, there wasn't a lot of reporting back then of this sort of thing. Oh, it would be very hard to find out, wouldn't it? Yeah, and he made his presence in the city immediately known on his arrival in a small advertisement in the daily paper, as he put it a most important lecture to all students of religion, science and metaphysics by A.B. Worthington, LLD and M.A. after his name. Now, that lecture was very well attended. All right, he's landed in Christchurch and is about to try and pull off a religious scam in New Zealand. He's chosen Christchurch. Wow, what a spot to try it. Uh, and this is one hell of a story. Don't go anywhere. We'll come back very shortly with the New Zealand leg of the so-called Mr Arthur Worthington and his church, which he set up in New Zealand. The most interesting radio show on planet Earth. The Weekend Variety Wireless. On Radio Live. Today, the story of Arthur Worthington, not his real name, and that's half the story. Confidence trickster who started up a church in Christchurch. He has had a reputation in the United States of being a confidence trickster. He's come to New Zealand to try his hand at it after it's gotten just a little bit too hot in the USA and he's burnt too many bridges. Communications being what they were in those days, I suppose he thought he could get away with this quite comfortably. Yeah, and he was a very impressive speaker. He certainly had that to his advantage. And he was a, he was a tall man. He had a mop of grey, almost white hair and compelling blue-grey eyes. And he had a very soft voice. Confidence tricksters are often very good listeners. They graceful bearing and, and a per, sort of persuasive manner. It greatly appealed to women. And such was his influence in a very short time in Christchurch that the faith cures started to be reported. And he became the recipient of many letters from very grateful followers. So he was trying his faith healing thing here in New Zealand, laying on of hands and stuff and Jesus compels you, that sort of thing. Yeah, and of course people were taken in by this and the truth he aimed to introduce as he said was port under a dozen different names in other countries. So he never claimed to be the only one teaching the, the so-called doctrine, whatever it was, but he did present a statement that he bore the truth and 
discarded the errors from each of the other systems. Now, there was a demand for more of his lectures and for regular instruction. I wonder why people were so keen to come along and see his lectures. Even the first one that was announced, a lot of people came along. Yeah, just straight from an ad in the paper. Isn't that amazing? Mm. And, uh, of course, he had the initials after his name and everything, but fortnightly he began to bring out a leaflet which he called The Comforter. It gave sort of biblical interpretations and in 1891 there appeared a volume entitled The Worthington Lectures and it was a dedication to her whose gentle love drew me from paths of sins whose life each hour is more Christ-like than any I have ever known. My companion, co-labourer, comrade, friend and wife. So all the time he drew in Mary Plunkett into this elaborate web and she wasn't even his wife. And in less than two years, they reckon, according to um, one of his pronouncements, his statement had bonded together in the city over 400 regular, sincere and devout worshippers and they called themselves the Students of Truth. They held two regular Sunday sessions. This was in 1891, over 300 pupils and teachers, and there were also two evening meetings during the week. And one of these was devoted to study, and uh, there was a, one, a day school, and there was also a kindergarten. So his growth was incredibly impressive, Graham. Right. Another parallel with Joseph Smith, he was also described as being extremely good-looking, had an intent gaze, uh, he w- appealed to women, Charismatic is the word. Yes, and these all con artists do share these common things, don't they? It's interesting. They um, the, su- the successful ones do, yeah. Yeah, they show a fascination with people. They're acute listeners. They're careful observers. They're usually fantastic conversationalists, and they know how to relate to you on an individual level. They're intuitive about your weaknesses and insecurities. They know how to sort of match your interests. Any common interest is a foot in the door. They look at straight in the eye and and they can lie and if you're desperate enough to believe the con man you know in a heartbeat you're caught in their web of deception so after only a year he's established something which sounds extremely lucrative he's got a kindergarten there's sunday schools he's holding these meetings. Are people just handing over money to them already? Yeah. Basically, they were giving money hand over fist and so sometimes their entire possessions, worldly possessions, it seems that few of the students, they didn't even seem to understand what the new teaching, the so-called new teaching, was all about. In fact, its obscurity was the attraction for them and they accepted they, they They accepted it without questioning. Almost like the more nebulous it is, the wider the harvest field. You know, oh yes, your truth is your truth, that sort of thing. And it would have been counter and... But because New Zealand wasn't exposed to a lot of different religious beliefs uh, at that time, it would have been something fresh and maybe spiritual that people could feel as though they were more part of than an organised hierarchical church. Yeah, exactly. And But, you know, Christchurch had perhaps our most Christian uh, foundations, if you like. So, you know, with the um, Christchurch Cathedral and all those donations from landowners and things like this, but there must have been a strong number of people in the city itself who were searching for something new. He picked his city well. He did, I reckon.
Graham, he did. And, you know, it was only about a year after he came, and on Christmas Day 1891, that a ceremony was held to mark the laying of the cornerstone of what was called the Temple of Truth and the site adjoining Latimer Square that we mentioned before. And, and where it was just completed like several months later. It was amazing. It had these six ionic columns and one of the finest buildings to be built in Christchurch at that time. And it, as I said, it could sit a 1,000 people on the ground floor and then further 600 in the gallery. This is a massive affair. It would have cost a fortune to build this with your Greek columns and everything. It's a grand-looking thing. Yeah, and it all came from regular monetary contributions of his so-called students. This included also, Graham, a very prominent and well-to-do citizens of Christchurch. The inside of the temple was impressively furnished and also his residence that was built for him, which was a 12-room mansion next door. So it was a certain record time he'd established himself total con artist. Wow. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm sure the clergy of the traditional church, Church of England, Presbyterian, whatever, you could take your pick in Christchurch, would have been a little upset with this guy. Oh, well, they certainly were alarmed at this stage, although not quite ready to engage him yet. But it was interesting how he set up the church too. He nominated as trustees eight prominent men, and they were all closely associated with them. So he kept a very good handle on it. In 1893, he went to Auckland to start a branch of the sect there, and he was listened to there with interest too, and they formed the uh, branch of the Students of Truth there. That just goes as further testimony to how charismatic he must have been. Yeah, phenomenal. I think he just fits the con artist personality perfectly. You know, this would be a great movie. Oh, it would be, wouldn't it? It would, and especially the sexual scandals that started to form too, because after he returned to Christchurch, he began to quarrel with so-called Mrs Worthington on the grounds that she had placed undue emphasis of sex in her teaching. Now, the motto of the order, this is the motto as he recorded it, was chastity in thought, continence in action. (laughs) It's a little bit strange, isn't it? But having the support of the trustees, he successfully um, succeeded in forcing her to leave the temple. He forced her to sign a document agreeing that she would leave New Zealand and surrender all her rights and properties, cease to bear the Worthington name, and also not divulge any of his past life. Now, this, of course, is one of the best tricks of a con man. They tried to keep their past highly secret and bully people that's right and he began to make the most bitter and malicious statements about the woman and those who supported her and this led to uh, quite a few students breaking away at this point this was the first sort of break a few months later he became intimate with another woman whose home he was in the habit of visiting late hours of the night and he said he was assisting her in literary pursuits but some of the students confirmed for themselves that that wasn't the sole reason oh helping her with their homework yeah yeah that's right so this caused another break with some of the students. So cracks were starting to develop. Now, now Mrs Worthington, she began to be approached by newspaper reporters, of course, you know, who, who sensed a scandal, and she agreed to talk and admitted that she hadn't been lawfully married to Worthington, but she was still legally Mrs Plunkett, who, with her husband, J.J. Plunkett, had earlier been prominent in Christian science activities in New York. Now, I'd just like to tell people 
people because a lot won't know. Christian science is a denomination of Christianity where they believe that illness is to do with sin and you can pray anything away and that's their point of difference. Yeah, good point, Graham. She also pointed out to the reporters that the two children that they had weren't actually Worthingtons at all. This would be big news in Christchurch, wouldn't it? Yeah, well, not only Christchurch, Graham, it suddenly hit the national news and it was actually raised in the House of Representatives by um, the Member for Parliament from New Plymouth, who is Mr E.M. Smith, and, and he asked in Parliament, has the Minister of Justice instructed the police authorities to thoroughly investigate the case? If not, will he do so without delay? And if he finds that Worthington has been guilty of gross immorality, will he order his arrest? So that he may be brought to justice and if the offence is proved be punished with the utmost rigour of the law. The uh, Prime Minister himself, the Premier um, Dick Seddon, he said he thought that the matter was a personal one and that the question should not be put on the order paper. And this was a question which the Speaker agreed with and when you think about it not really quite a question for Parliament. But because it was brought up in Parliament it gives testimony testimony to exactly how big this story was nationwide. Yeah, but Dick Seddon did say that it should be left to the community to deal with and then they were ready to deal with it too and of course now there were a lot of Christian ministers in Christchurch. Worthington had dismissed them, some of them he called Japanese praying machines but another group he called Kerr's barking at street corners. It's so easy to get away with that and have it sound convincing by pointing to scripture. It's one of the major messages of the New Testament that the Pharisees are just going through the motions. It's not real prayer, that sort of thing. Yeah, that's right. But there was a Reverend John Hosking. He was a Methodist minister in Christchurch. He actually delighted in religious controversy and, and he um, tried successfully to challenge Worthington to a public debate. By 1893, he'd done a bit of digging and he found that Worthington was a man with an astounding criminal record. Right, so he has tracked down Worthington's past. Yes, and now it's there for all to see. Okay, we'll take a break, come back, and we'll report how this unravels. One of New Zealand's most infamous con artists and uh, religious hucksters, a man not by the name of Arthur Bentley Worthington. You're tuned in to the Weekend Variety Wireless. Outsiders with Jared Hindmarsh. The Worthington religious husker in the 1890s in Christchurch. He came from the United States of America after things got well too hot there with his confidence trickery. But he found a very willing and generous to him harvest field, shall we say, in Christchurch. He's built a temple. It would have cost a fortune. He's built a mansion for himself. But it's starting to unravel after the split between him and his so-called wife. She's spilt some beans. And now the Reverend John Hosking has done some digging. Somehow, I don't know how they did in those days, found out information from the United States of America about this man's history. And he's going to spill the beans. Jared. Yeah, it was all unravelling for 
Worthington indeed, and it transpired that he'd left scores of victims in many towns he'd visited in America, and during his long career as an adventurer and confidence man, he'd taken at least eight wives, and the last of these, before he took up with Mrs Plunkett, she was left destitute in a Dakota town after he'd succeeded in robbing her of $12,000. His real name was revealed, Samuel Oakley Crawford, and he'd gone by many assumed names. He'd been ordained as a Methodist minister, but he'd been, uh, after two years, he was sentenced to a three-year prison term. He had a different name for every one of the nine marriages. Yes, basically he did. Just slight variations, but enough to set him apart. And he'd posed as a lawyer, uh, a banker, a political orator, a real estate operator, a spiritualist and a mining speculator. These were all his careers. And people throughout New Zealand were shocked that a man with such a criminal record could establish himself in Christchurch and win a large following as a teacher of what purported to be a religion. It was just amazing for people, Graham. This was reported around New Zealand and despite this revelation of his criminal past, he still had many faithful followers. This happens over and over again. It's incredible. People get completely exposed as fraudsters and somehow for a certain sector of a sect, it increases their faith in them. Yeah, but he had this hold over them, and especially the woman. In fact, at the fourth anniversary of coming to New Zealand, he celebrated at a reunion at a social hall, and he made reference to the increased attendance at the temple every Sunday and the prosperous character of the school and kindergarten and the steady growth of the Sunday school of every department of his work. And he said, this should be the ground for encouragement to us all all and he pointed out that he'd delivered something like 712 lectures and there were 55 smaller lectures and there were the students of truth had published 1.7 million pages of literature in New Zealand and there was something like a grand total of nearly 3 million pages of literature published since his work commenced as astounding output and in 1895 he was preparing his exit there was no doubt about it and he encouraged the trustees to force a sale of the Temple of Truth so that he could secure a clear title to the property and after purchasing the property at auction for about a half of its original cost he delayed payment of the purchase money with several excuses and to saying he was um, non-arrival of expected funds from America was a sort of typical excuse you'd expect wouldn't it? Right so this is him you can, in retrospect, we can see he's planning to pocket as much cash as we can to go somewhere else like Chad. Yeah, he was wanting to cash up and he was going to do it in a legal fashion, basically. All the debenture holders were, were unable to obtain payment of the interest due to them and some who had uh, mortgaged their homes and contributed all their life savings to help finance the buildings out of devotion to him, they were rendered completely penniless anyway. Early in uh, 1895, Worthington left Christchurch on what he said was a health visit to Australia. 
And in Sydney, he promptly sold the return portion of his ticket. And uh, one of the trustees followed him there, though, and induced him to return to Christchurch. So the following August, Worthington, he married a young Christchurch woman, Miss Evelyn Maud Jordan. Really married her or pretended to marry her? In his church, I suppose. But, of course, he was an eight-time bigamist, so... Yes, exactly. And it was in the opposition to the wishes of many of his followers, actually. And and, uh, Mrs Plunkett, the woman who had had few years before been taken to Christchurch as his wife, she was now living in absolute poverty in Australia. So she actually was forced out and got nothing? Absolutely nothing. She was just destitute. And Miss Jordan, she apparently quite undeterred by the fact that uh, she was to be Worthington's ninth wife, because that was in the press, and that he'd deserted all her predecessors, but didn't seem to put her off, Graham. No. You know? Well, being destitute as a woman in 1890s, it's pretty tough. There's so few backups for people in those days. Yeah, that's right. The legal proceedings against him became more and more advanced and he was forced to leave for Australia again in December 1895 and he alleged that he would go from there to America to secure the sending of the money to complete the purchase of the temple. Anyway, after two months' absence, he sent a letter from Hobart to the treasurer of the trustees that no money would be forthcoming from America and that it was not his intention to even return. He'd left Christchurch basically without paying tradesmen bills and there were at least one unsatisfied judgment for debt against him or uh, at that time so the trustees replied to a request for information from Hobart that Worthington was a man of reproachless character they met again in 1896 of the uh, former students of truth so he still got believers totally isn't that amazing but yeah. there was a, ha- a group against him now who were uh, making a, a spirited sort of protest about him really the six years that he'd spent in Christchurch, it was they some some of them were saying now it was the duty of them to draw the attention of the public of Hobart to the Worthington's career to stop it happening yet again somewhere else because he'd set up shop in Hobart. I'm, I, <laughs> I wonder what he was getting up to there. He'd yeah. half built a church probably. Yeah, exactly. So they sent a message to Hobart about this man. There was a Mr Gray um, who spoke at some length about the conduct of Worthington in Christchurch. He wanted to inform the public of Hobart that we know him to be an, an accomplished liar, a swindler and a deceiver and entirely unworthy of the trust and confidence of any respectable person. He also added, he emphasised certain doctrines such as the non-resistance of evil and the universality of the good in such a way as to blunt the perception of his followers to a sense of right and wrong. In every case where any of his followers adventured to express opinions contrary to his own or to entertain unfavourable views regarding his conduct and have persisted in such opposition, he has invariably caused them to be expelled from his meetings if necessary by physical force and has by speech and influence caused such person to be treated with insult and ostracism. Uh, We can picture this. This happens in the cults. This happens in religions. Yeah. That any dissent, in order to maintain that power, they're ostracised, humiliated. It happened in the Cultural Revolution of Mao. Yes, it did, didn't it? There's never any remorse. They never seem to think that they've done anything wrong. Yeah, it's 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 what they've 
trained themselves to do. It's so rare, that delicious moment of comeuppance. Yeah. There was actually a motion carried without dissent by hundreds of men and women in Christchurch who'd formerly been Worthington's devout disciples. You know, that uh, it was the end of them. But, you know, and the citizens of Christchurch, they now thought with some reason that, that this was good riddance to Worthington. And to that end, this Mr Gray, uh, who's writing a letter to Hobart to warn the citizenry of this charlatan, he cannot be relied on for morality, veracity, honesty or justice, but is absolutely unscrupulous in using the energies, abilities and financial resources of his followers to serve his own base, selfish and ambitious aims, so long as they surrendered themselves to his influence. Mm, well, um, so many parallels. We've seen this happen over and over again, haven't we? Yeah, they did. And that motion was carried without dissent by hundreds of men and women who had formerly been Worthington's devout disciples. Mm. Of course, the, the citizens of Christchurch, they would have thought, wouldn't they, with some reason, that this was good riddance to Worthington and he was never to be seen again. But 18 months later, Graham, he turns up again in the city and boldly advertises a lecture he is to give in the Oddfellows Hall. And he calls it, My Work in Hobart and Christchurch and why I return. Wow. This guy has balls. He does. This yeah. is amazing. All right, we'll take our final break. What is he going to do? His name is Mud now, even amongst most of his former followers, but he's returned with his head held high. Oh, okay. The story of the shyster, A.B. Worthington. Of course, not his real name. We'll be back very shortly with Jared Hindmarsh. Curiosity not only killed the cat, it spawned a whole radio show. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. From the 1890s, an incredible story of a shyster, a huckster, a religious cult leader, and his past caught up with him completely in the USA, but he's trying the same thing again in Christchurch and apparently Hobart. He's been exposed in Christchurch and shamed and he's uh, left the country. He's gotten rid of his wife, who's now in poverty. Uh, he's been found to be a charlatan. He owes what would have been millions uh, and just disappeared. So his name's Mud in Christchurch. But hello, he returns again and is advertising that he's going to give a lecture in Christchurch. My work in Hobart and Christchurch. Well, 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 well. What happens, Jared? Well, as indeed he turns up in the Oddfellows Hall in Christchurch, expecting to talk about my work in Hobart and Christchurch and why I return. And the hall, of course, was crowded with a hostile crowd and there were constant interjections and noise. It made him impossible to even be heard. And so the meeting was just broken up and outside an angry crowd, they hooted and yelled and Worthington had to be escorted by the police out. Now, absolutely undaunted, it was amazing, he undertook to give another lecture the following Sunday evening. That was on the 26th of September 1897. Now, where, well, I wonder where on earth he was living. 
I wonder. He would have had to keep under the radar. And before the lecture, he'd actually sought police protection, Graham, and the entire Christchurch police force and constables from as far away as Kaiapoi, they were called in to be stationed outside the hall where a crowd of 6,000 people had gathered. Well, given that, it would have been, and let's transfer this to a modern time, that would have been... Uh, leading the news, wouldn't it? All oh. of the police of Christchurch for this event and 6,000 people gathered to either, t- well, to try and tar and feather this guy, but he's still got the confidence <laughs> of a huckster. It's amazing, isn't it? And he'd ordered a cab to take him home after the lecture. He had no chance of getting away, of course. As the hostile crowd surged forward, the constables drew their batons. They were expecting a riot. It looked as though the police would be overpowered by the angry mob and the cab would be overturned. Anyway, after briefly consulting another magistrate on the ugly situation that had developed, one of the magistrates mounted the box of the vehicle and read, for the first time in Christchurch's history, the Riot Act. Actually read the Riot Act. (laughs) Read the Riot Act. You know, you read the Riot Act before a riot. And as he said, Our Sovereign Lady, the Queen, charges and commandeth all persons being assembled immediately to disperse and peacefully to depart to their habitations or to their lawful business under the pain of being guilty of an offence on conviction of which they may be sentenced to imprisonment with hard labour for life. God save the Queen. So that's the Riot Act. And Mr Beetham, the uh, magistrate, he, he gave the police instructions to disperse the crowd and the way gradually sort of became clear and Worthington returned safely to his house by a very devious route and he continued to lecture for some weeks but he did not enjoy, the obviously, the attention or limelight he'd earlier thrived on and he had hostile crowds wherever he tried to talk and he left Christchurch for good in January 1898. Now, how come he wasn't a he owed what would have been millions. It's amazing. He just managed to evade the law nearly every turn. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Anyway, he departed for Australia finally in uh, April or May 1898 and he, he never returned to New Zealand. And in 1902, he was jailed for seven years in Melbourne for defrauding. And would you believe this? In the guise of the reincarnated god, Zyrus. And, and it was a wealthy French widow actually he'd taken in and he called her his Isis and the presiding judge described him at the end of the case as one of the most dangerous imposters that has ever come into this country. So he finally got his comeuppance in Melbourne. Yes he did and after his release he he was now a self proclaimed reformed Christian and he... Oh, right, he's done this before. Yeah, totally. He started to raise money from followers to take Evelyn Worthington and their four children and this is the family had returned to New Zealand during the course of his sentence uh, back to the United States. And amazingly, he, he survived a shipwreck en route, but there, would you believe it, he became a Presbyterian pastor in New York, a New Hamburg area of New York. So he served a sentence in Melbourne, yeah, got out of jail, and then took his New Zealand wife that he married in Christchurch back to New York. 
Yeah. Survived a shipwreck and started up as a Presbyterian minister yeah. there. Now, after several years of praying on his congregation, he was expelled from the ministry and began to engage in further swindles around the United States. And he was he was finally arrested in January 1917, and he spent the rest of the year in custody where he died of a heart attack on the 13th of December after he was confronted by one of his latest female victims who came to see him in prison. So if anyone did get his comeuppance, finally in jail, he had a heart attack as this woman berated him. He only spent nine years in New Zealand off and on, uh, you know, probably only about six years in reality. But what a substantial impact he'd made. He, he'd always been a man, you know, whose superlatives were used in every direction. He could apparently shed copious crocodile tears and he could, believe it or not, this is a quote, he could bleed freely from his lungs whenever the occasion required. He was said to be one of the sin's most miserable slaves, one of Satan's most degraded vessels and one of hell's most legitimate victims. His preaching on sex and his alleged sexual proclivities made him one of the most loathed figures in a society trying to emerge from colonial rawness to middle-class respectability. Well, well, what an individual. And unfortunately, he's not the Lone Ranger as far as this approach goes as well. History has attested to. And just for those people that can remember, in Christchurch, it would have been rather a landmark. Uh, Latimer Hall was what it was called. That was the temple that he built, the Temple of Truth, uh, was converted into Latimer Hall, which a lot of people would remember, I'm sure. There's always a group of people out there who are ready to be conned. It's an incredibly sad thing, and, and you know, we have such amazing con artists all through history. They had this ability to make people feel special, which is a delicious temptation. Yeah, it is, and they just completely personalise it too. And they're very good at lying. They're very good at remembering their lies. Even to a large group of people, they'll remember their lies individually to each person and build on it, you know. As with all confidence tricksters, he faked being someone of authority. That's very important. Well, what a story. And... You know, Jared, I really hope one day we can learn from history and these people just don't get any traction anymore. Yeah, well, I hope so too, of course, but as psychologists will always tell us, there's a universal human need, Graham, to believe in something, to, to sort of give our maybe our lives some meaning, and, and reality is only what we take to be true, of course, and people can decide that any time. No, that's not true, actually, because reality kicks back um, and you will be ripped off. Yeah, well, eventually, of course, yes. Yeah. We should be better armed with scepticism all the time, uh, I think, uh, and that, that would see us being much better off. But, yeah, probably these people will always have some success, but I'm hopeful that they will have less and less. Oh, I hope so, too. It's good to have these examples of history spelled out to us, really, so we hopefully don't repeat it, you know? Exactly. Thank you very much, Jared. Tremendous story. Arthur Bentley Worthington. Thank you, Graham.
A big thank you to the elves who managed to yoink the rat out of the intertube so we can upload the podcasts and you can download them at your leisure. So if you don't already subscribe, you can listen at any time you like without the ads. Although you might miss out on a deal or two. You never know. You know, people complain about ads too much for, for my liking. Try selling something. Let's say you've got a business and people say, oh, I hate ads. All right, thanks. Uh, just trying to tell you about what we've got. You hate ads until you're in the market for something. You see a really good deal, you go, God, that's just what I'm after. I might go and see that. Ads play a role. They play an important role. Um, I'm not of the feeling, you know, that universal, oh, stupid ads. We can get, get rid of them, get rid of them. Wait till you need something, you're in the market for it, you change your mind. Yeah, some things are nice with that ads. Um, but whatever. Okay, uh, thank you all very much for listening and do spread the word. Go on. I'm going to be taking a break uh, next weekend for uh, you know, a commemoration of the crew murders. 1970, 17th of June. Don't ask why. I'm off. Mike Puru will be hosting, and he's vastly experienced, and he will be fun. It will be a gas. Do listen in. Most of the regulars will be there. Uh, Grant Smithies won't be. Good evening, everybody. Join in Talkback, 0800 844 747. Have a great evening. Have a great week. From my point of view, a great couple of weeks. I'll be on Facebook just following up stuff from this weekend over the next couple of days if anything comes to mind. All righty. Cheers all. And Anthony Bourdain. What a damn, damn shame.